What's it like to choose to move away from the music industry to go full indie? We're going to talk about that on today's episode of Music Therapy. Hey everybody, welcome to Music Therapy. I'm Jessica Risker. I'm a musician based here in Chicago, Illinois, and I am also a licensed clinical professional counselor. Music Therapy is a mental health slash existential podcast for musicians and music fans, and we talk about creativity, careers, and mental health. I hope you guys are doing well. Daylight savings time just kicked in over the weekend, and the weather has been sort of crazy here in Chicago, but winter is right around the corner for us. If you are in Chicago or somewhere that gets wintry, I hope you're hanging in there. If you find yourself prone to mood changes when winter comes, check out our episode all about seasonal affective disorder. That's uh, episode 49. It is full of information about seasonal affective disorder or, or SAD as they call it, and has lots of tips for coping with that. I'm not a huge fan of winter, but I do enjoy the holidays. And I also find that after the holidays are over, the dead of winter is a really great time to work on music and just kind of hunker down and uh, spend some time writing. I don't know if anybody else finds that to be the case. Let me know how you get through the winter. Tips are welcome. Announcement, we're launching a Patreon. I might have it up by the time this episode comes out, but it's definitely going to be up really soon. And it's just a way to give us some support This is definitely a labor of love. Um, There's some hardworking people on this podcast. Uh, Joshua Wentz engineers, Sully Davis produces to support the show will will help keep those guys from abandoning me and uh, abandoning (laughs) abandoning the podcast. They're so helpful. They're so sweet. So yeah, check it out. Um, There's also going to be some uh, exclusive content for people who want to give a little support, and there's different levels that you can do that at. We try to make it all manageable and doable, Um, but just wanted to announce that. That's going to be available through our website at musictherapypodcast.com. Today, my guest is Steph Reed, and Steph Reed is a New York-based musician, educator, and activist. As a musician and producer, Steph has produced many tracks that have made it to the Billboard charts. As an educator, he has taught thousands of youth over the past 15 years, and he was nominated for the Grammy Music Educator Award. As an activist, he is currently building a nonprofit in Brooklyn called Power of Love. I talked to Steph while he was in a classroom after a day of teaching, so you'll hear some ambient school noise in the background of our conversation. And of course, you're going to hear some music. We're going to listen to two tracks from Steph later in the conversation. I walked away from this conversation inspired. I hope you will too. Here's my conversation with Steph Reed. Steph, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So I start off every episode by asking uh, the interviewee, in this case, Steph Reed, what does a typical week look like for you these days? A typical week is, ooh, the smattering of things from, like, classroom, a lot of classroom work, a lot of bike riding. Um, a lot of learning and research. Um, there's some, there's, there's going to be a stop somewhere at a thrift store or two to buy some pieces <laughs> or just to, to like look and see, like look for inspiration. There's going to probably be some practicing or some shedding on an instrument. Um, and probably watching a, a show or two, including like Handmaid's Tale and like Atlanta. Okay, okay. We are, um, you know, this podcast is, is usually an audio format, but we're Zooming right now and you are actually sitting in a classroom right yeah. now. Yeah. Is, is this your classroom? You know, I, this is, this is not my, act, my classroom. This is a classroom that I'm in. Um, I do a lot of work during the week as a substitute teacher, so 
I'm in all types of classrooms during the day in different spaces, and um, I also teach. Um, I work as a teaching artist after school, teaching like music production and songwriting and songwriting for social change. But today, right now, in this moment, I just finished being a substitute teacher for the Department of Education. What's that like? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like on its best on its at its at its best, substitute teaching is like. It's an opportunity for exploration to see like what different cultures of schools are like, what works in like learning what works in school settings, what's possible in school settings. At its best, I'm like connecting to young people and learning from them. Like I'm like building relationships, having a great time, feeling like a big brother or like an uncle or something. Mm -hmm. At its worst, I feel like it's like babysitting. And worse than that, it can sometimes feel like a prison. And I'm like, I'm a CEO trying not to get stabbed in the in the in, in the hallway. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I imagine you never quite know what you're walking into as a substitute. You never know. So I want to ask you about something you put on your form for this show. Mm -hmm. You said. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you here. As an educator, Reed has taught thousands of youth between the ages of 4 to 24 over the past 15 years. And in 2013, you were nominated for the Grammy Music Educator Award and taught a Power of Love workshop at NYU, Ed Sullivan Fellows Fellowship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can, you, can you talk about that? Sure. Um, you know, I've been teaching now 16 years. Um, and it's, it's interesting, like, I, my introduction to teaching was through a, um, an after-school program. It was for a nonprofit organization called Sobro, South Bronx, like, acronym for South Bronx, Sobro. So uh, I was working there in the Bronx River Community Center in the projects. There's a community center dead in the middle of the South, the projects in the South Bronx. And um, I was asked to teach music and I was given zero budget. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a drop, I had dropped out of college at that point in my life. And I'm like making a name for myself as a music producer. And so being asked to teach music when I'm like, I'm a self-taught musician. At that point, I had dropped out of college and I'm really pursuing a career as a music producer, trying to be like the next Pharrell or something like this. So. Getting into education was like, I, it worked out in a way where I guess it was destined, right? But at the time it felt like the most inappropriate thing to ask me to do. Um, so after years and years and years of teaching, um, you know, along came this category that I had no idea was even, it just kind of like, it became this thing where they made like, the Grammys decided to they wanted to recognize music educators, and it was like the first year. And then somehow, somehow, some way, um, enough, I guess enough people had recognized the work I had done and like put my name in, a, in, a, in a, I guess in the, in the nomination and the submissions for like people to be recognized. And I got an email saying, hey, you've been recognized. We want, we're nominating you for this thing. And though there are several, um, steps of the process getting into that initial that initial piece of being recognized and considered for it meant so much because i've been doing it for so long and um you know it's a, it often you know teaching feels like a thankless job and um people talk a lot about how essential teachers are people talk a lot about how necessary and important the work we do are is and how important we are and especially during lockdown and you know pandemic a lot of a lot of parents had to like homeschool their kids and they realized how difficult how mm -hmm. extremely difficult it is to teach somebody a thing and there's even more of this acknowledgement of like how important this is and how hard it is and but you don't always get treated that way when you're in a school building you know whether it's from the kids or from the faculty of the school, you're not always you're not always feeling valued. You often feel exploited and exhausted, 
and there's a turn, the turnover ratio, like there's a high attrition rate when it comes to teachers. Like a lot of teachers leave and they're burnt out and they're tired and they don't want to do it no more. So I'm saying that to say being acknowledged and considered for that prestigious award um, at that time, it felt really good and I'm still something that I am grateful for. And it's not the thing that keeps me going. I'm not doing it for, the, for to, I'm not doing what I do for those things, but it is nice to be acknowledged. Absolutely, that's really amazing. I think that is something to be very proud of. Um, okay, let me, let me see if I can get into some of the details of your career here. And also, I just wanna say shout out to the Grammys. They just created another new category. Here we are. Almost 10 years later, they created the um, best song for social change. And, so, and just like similar to the Music Educator Award when they announced it in 2013, when they just created it, so many people were tagging me, said you should, people were tagging me, they were sending it to me. It was like, yo, you're perfect for this. The same reaction was with this whole new, like, best song for social change. Like, so many people tagged and shared me, shared it with me and tagged me in it. And I, I put my name in the hat. Let's see what happens. I don't know how it's going to pan out. But, um, yeah, it's, these things are like, I don't know. It, it's kind of like, I guess what they say what's for you is for you, right? If you just focus on doing your work and your mission, and stay in your lane and just do what you were, what is, what means something to you, what you feel called to do. The opportunities that are aligned and are for you will actually come about, even if they're not, they, even if they don't exist today, mm. they may exist in five years, it may exist in 10 years. So that's, I'm saying that to say, no, when I, when I first started teaching that was the music educator award was not, it, it was not a thing. It did not exist to even be recognized. Mm -hmm. So, but here we are, you know, 20 years, almost 20 years later. And now there's actually a, a platform where it gets recognized. So I, I, just, I don't know. I feel like this is just a reminder to whoever's listening. Um, do, do, do the good work, do what you, do what you believe matters. Focus on doing the work. Focus on making an impact. Focus on like fulfilling your purpose and your promise and your like mission, your divine mission in life. Focus on that, and you know things. Things do, sometimes they do come and sometimes they don't. But th th it doesn't define you. If anything, if you get those things, it's like a confirmation of the work you are already doing. But you can't do it for those things because. In my case, Music Educator Award didn't even exist when I started teaching. Right. I would have, if I would have used that as like a, a North Star. Right. Like, and they could take it away next year and it may not ever exist again. Who knows? The point is do the work. So let me piggyback off. You put your name in. On, on, did you um, submit a particular song? Yeah, I submitted. I, it, was, it was difficult for me because I make a lot of songs about social change. Um, I decided... To when I looked at the criteria, they talked really about impact and about positivity and inclusiveness. And so I was like, well, I'm just gonna submit front my a song called Frontline. It was about police brutality and Black Lives Matter. I was like, you know what, I don't know if that would be the I think when we think about impact, I think about my song Power of Love, because it's also the name of my nonprofit organization in which I do like arts and activism work. It's, the, it's where we do mutual aid and we, we give grants to BIPOC women. Um, we give, like we do voter registration concerts. We do like protest relief. We do so many things that impact communities um, in the most intimate and like meaningful ways. And it's, it stems from the work that I did on making that album and song, Power of Love. So mm -hmm. like, I submitted Power of Love because I feel like it's a capstone. It like encapsulates everything that kind of is like my ethos and like my philosophy and what I'm about that I felt that would be the most inclusive and like piece that represents not just song, but this is a movement. This is like a whole thing. So I submitted that song. Let's take a listen to Power of Love.
I love hearing the story of that song. Um, good luck. Thank you. So, okay. Thank you very much. There's a through line through your music and your work as a teacher and all the nonprofit work, which is this social change and this social activism that seems like it's threaded throughout everything I'm hearing that you're doing. Does that feel accurate? Yeah, it does. It feels accurate. Yeah, it's such a weird thing. My dad, Stephen Reed, he used to always talk to me about like, and this is like 10, 15, even 20 years ago. It's like everything you're doing is gonna make sense in 10, 15 years. It may feel random right now, it may feel pointless, it may feel like, but he was like, eventually it's gonna converge, it's gonna be, it's mm. gonna, this is the body of your work. Uh-huh. That's was, okay. Wait a second. I want to think about that for a second. That you, he's saying you're doing all these pieces, which may seem sort of disparate, but they are comprising. You are making the body right now, and at some point, you'll see the whole thing. That's yes. it. Yes. So I like I, that. I didn't like it when he told it to me. You didn't? Why? Like, because at the time, 
I didn't feel, I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't feel it and I couldn't see it. So why would that make you not like it? Well, <laughs> if you're thirsty and all you want is to drink some water and someone says you're on the right path to get the water, if you just keep walking, you're going to eventually reach it. It's like, I'm thirsty now. Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to hear that I'm on the right path to getting some water. I need water now. He's, so, not, he's saying be patient. You'll get there. Yes, and I don't want to hear that at that time. Because at that time, I was desperate and I was like struggling. And it's like, sure, it sounds nice. But at, the, at that particular time, I was desperate and I was struggling and I was having a really hard time. And it's like feeling really discouraged all the time and wondering if, if this even matters anymore. You know, like what? What are you referring to? If what matters? The artist's way, the artist's path, you know. This idea of being an artist is not just about making art. It's like this there's a whole lifestyle that comes along with being an artist. This idea of being a freedom fighter, it's celebrated when it's like when we talk about Martin Luther King or like Rosa Parks or somebody, right? But like those are like the icons of that work. And it's like everybody doesn't get to be an icon. And you don't even know if you don't know, you don't know if any of this is gonna add up especially when you're earlier in your journey like and often when you're in the beginning of your journey and like early in those stages you know if if it's not adding up economically mm -hmm. and you're not able to like create a better life for yourself doing these things and we live in a capitalist society that values productivity and wealth and it values like material things like if i can't create a better life for myself doing these things how meaningful is it if i'm struggling and if i'm broke and if i'm like not really it feels like you're just meandering and what's the word it's like uh toiling away uh-huh it's like it can make you start to feel crazy it, it can make you feel crazy if like if this matters so much why does my life not ref why doesn't it feel like it around in my life why am i not getting that reflected back to me yes why isn't it reflected back to you why is like why am i hearing no you're not good enough no no you're not right for this you're not good enough keep like if all you're hearing is no and you're feeling broke and you're feeling like you're struggling and you're feeling like you're going up this uphill this uphill battle trying to move this mountain uphill or a boulder up a mountain, you're trying to do this, it feels like all signs are pointing to no. Yeah. It can make, it's crazy making. Are there, are there particular experiences of, you know, you were saying all I'm hearing is no. Are there particular experiences of rejection that you're thinking of when you're talking about that? Yeah, years of years and years and years. Of what? Years what what were you? What, what oh my you... goodness. Oh, okay. So like, um, earlier in my career, I spent a lot of time um, doing music production. So like, making tracks to place on signed artists, like whether it's Beyonce or Rihanna or Jay Z or like Justin Timberlake or whoever whoever pop insert pop star here. Mm -hmm. You're making music, a beat, and then collaborating with songwriters, making songs, making records, making beats to place on these artists. And you're going through middlemen, like A&Rs. You're going through, like, managers. You're going through a interns. You're going through personal assistants. You're going through their publisher. You're going through all the, middle, all the people trying to get to the artist. And you're constantly being told that what you're doing is, like, it's no for whatever the reason is. And sometimes it's, like maybe call us and then they don't pick up the phone they ghost you <laughs> yeah it's a whole it's a it's a whole shit show but the point is that is like crazy making you know what i mean like it's you'd have to be there you had to be there <laughs> i believe that i mean i'm also like that is ambitious to be like i'm gonna make a track and i want beyonce to to, lo to love this and to sing on it and i i it sounds like you were going for it you were going for it. you weren't you were thinking big yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. 
I, I, I'm in New York, you know what I mean? All the labels are here, all the publishing companies. Well, at least they were at the, in like the 90s and the 2000s, they were here. Mm -hmm. So you could walk by a Def Jam building and see your favorite artist or producer or name whoever that's notable. You could see them walking out of the, out of the, the label, out of the building. Uh -huh. You could walk by a studio like Sony or Electric Lady or Hit Factory and see your favorite people walking in and walking out. So it feels like I'm, right a, few I'm a few degrees of separation it's from right that. It's right there, yeah. You go, I went to school and in my high school, there were people that were in movies, on TV, had record deals, were dancing background for an artist on tour somewhere or in music videos. So like... Ah, so close to it. You're so close. So the idea that I can do it, it doesn't feel like... It's impossible. It feels like I just need to get in because uh, my, someone I know people that are in already. Yes, that makes sense. I wanna, I wanna understand a little more clearly because you have a, a large, patchwork of things that you do, and so you. I I, I heard that you went to college, you left college, you were trying to produce tracks when you went to college what were you what were you thinking of studying did you know what did you want to do with what, what, were you, what at that time in your life what did you want to do at that time of my life i had i had just graduated high school and i won a i won a songwriting competition sponsored by bmg so i knew that i was a good writer um, I was self-taught on the keys, and I learned that while I was in high school, so I, I auditioned as a singer, um, taught myself keys, and got really good at production and writing by, the, by my, within two years. I had opened up for Hezekiah Walker with my singing group at, the, at Madison Square Garden for the McDonald's Gospel Fest in 97. Um, my singing group was featured on an, on an unreleased album for 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 this for this group that was signed to like Electra Records, um, I had been in the studio with people from Rough Riders, so like I was, I was on track. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so by the time when I go to college, I have a kid on the way, so I'm like a teenage father, and I'm like I gotta do something with my life because my dad is like I'm living with my dad, and he's like all right you have to either get a job or go to school. And you have a kid on the way. So I got a job working at McDonald's. Um, and so during the day, I'd go, to, I'd go to school, go to college, I went to Five Towns University on my songwriting scholarship. And everything that I was learning at, at school felt so like boring. And it felt so disconnected because I started getting into the industry. And I'm, I'm, I remember that same semester, while I'm like taking lessons on like audio theory and music theory and harmony and sight singing, um, I'm like in the studio with people from like Def Jam and seeing signed art. I'm seeing, I'm in the studio now. Like, yeah. so you're trying to teach me about these certain things on, first of all, at that particular time, the equipment was, was behind. So this, the equipment in the studio they weren't using Pro Tools. I'm in the actual studio with signed people and they're using Pro Tools. So I'm like, this is, right. there's a disconnect here. Right. And like, so all the things that I'm seeing that are like in the, the prof professionals are using like MPC 2000 or like Pro Tools and DATs and ADATs and like all these things, I'm, I'm not seeing it connected to what I'm learning on. So I felt like you got, I felt like school was holding me back. Uh-huh. And, and, um, I went to school to, I majored in audio engineering because I was like, if I'm gonna have a backup to being a music producer, I'll be an engineer. Mm -hmm. That was the, <laughs> it's not the best idea, but it was the best idea from a 19 year old father. So, um, it's useful. That, it's useful to know that stuff as a musician. Yes, but I learned so much more from being in the studio sure. and being in that school. Sure. So, I went because I wanted to do the right thing by my parents. And I thought I would learn a lot, but what I learned was I was more advanced than what I was getting from that school. So I dropped out to focus completely on music. Okay, gotcha. 
when when you started working as a teacher at the nonprofit in the Bronx, was that close to that time? Well, I got into let's. I started getting into the music industry around ninety seven, ninety eight. I started getting into teaching. That was in the Bronx. That was two thousand and six. So like, okay, al- almost ten years had passed. Almost a good seven, eight years had passed since I've been grinding away. Um, so what did that look like? Those grinding away years. How were you doing that? Man, the grinding away years. I think I got so much success so soon. Like that. Like. There was, there was a lot of no's, but then you get one win that was able to carry you over. So, like, you get told no all the time. You're chasing people down all the time, but then you get a song on the radio. So, like, when I was 20, like, a year after, a year after, about a year after dropping out of college, um, I was working with a producer named Troy Taylor, and he was working with an artist named Kenny Lattimore. And he was producing the record, and I was an intern and trying to get on at that time. And he gave me an opportunity to play keys on that record. And, and that was his first single from that album. That song was called Weekend by Kenny Lattimore. And I was introduced to him from a, a friend of mine uh, named Hajik. We went to high school together and he was like my frenemy. He was like my, he was like a professor. He was like, he was like the Magneto to my Professor X. And um, he introduced me to Troy, who then he, Troy is like f- responsible for like, developing and signing Trey songs. So like, I was part of the team that helped develop Trey songs' sound, that helped him get his deal. And I was also did produ- production on a Trey songs' first album. Through Troy, I also worked with Janae Aiko when she was really young, when she was like 12. I was like producing songs, I produced for her. I worked for like, I worked with like Little Mo and like Drew Hill and RL from Next. And I started just making like the grind What's interesting about that stuff is like, especially in New York, there's like a circle of, the more you get into like your craft and pushing, marketing yourself and trying to take meetings and you start to connect with other writers and producers that are in the same grind of trying Uh to play songs. You get, you start to, you meet people through like ASCAP, you meet people through BMI, you meet people that are also going to meetings. Maybe you're both in the lobby and you network that way. You go to a studio, you go to a studio to play an an artist or a manager or an A&R some records. There's another maybe writer playing them at the same time or coming in while you're going out or going out while you're coming in. There's like conferences, you meet people, you start to click up and you meet different people. A lot of it is competitive. Some of it you find, you form alliances and you like steel sharpen steel. So those grind years, I've met a lot of brilliant artists that are like, you know, super successful and like talented. And I don't know those, it's, it was just, it was just, it's a tricky thing to like navigate art and commerce in a hyper-competitive, hyper-misogynistic, homophobic, and like toxic environment, like the music industry, it's also like super exploitive. I think for me, working in nonprofit and working in like community work, it felt more so about, it wasn't transactional. It was like, Uh it was purpose-driven. Whereas like the music industry, it can, it can, it can drain your soul because like you're constantly you're battling here's what i want to make versus here's what the market wants or here's yes. what the a r says that they want and yeah. you're like you're trying to like make that balance of like being authentic and having integrity but also wanting to get a placement and it's a very tricky dance to do um and you're not sure who's your real friend and you're not sure who is really for you and who's just trying to use you and what's in the, what's transactional and what's real. Whereas like once I got, the more I started going on to the other side of like philanthropy and nonprofit and education, it felt like alignment and not transactional. Do you feel like you have ever been able to sort of, because I, I know that tension, I, I understand that tension between I wanna make what feels true to me, what I like. But there's also, I guess we'll just call it market forces of what, what might be well-received or in demand. Have you ever been able to square your own artistry with those pressures or that tension? Or how, how do you understand that for yourself now? Well, I think one of the most imperative things that I've had to do is like unlearn 
what I was programmed with, unlearn what I was taught, and like shift expectations. Whereas when I was a, a young man and a, and a kid, I wanted to be a super producer. I wanted to be the top of the game. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be the top of the food chain. I wanted to be Puff Daddy. I wanted to be Pharrell. I wanted to be whoever, insert whatever celebrity producer. I wanted to be the top, the best. So there is a lot, that, there's a lot of things. If you're gonna play that particular game, there are a lot of things that come with it. Some which, which you may like and some which you may not like. A breakthrough for me was like deciding that I'm not gonna play that game, that I get to decide the game I'm gonna play. Like, I'm not gonna play that one. And because I was able to reconcile, okay, if I don't do this, that means I get to do this, but maybe I don't get to do this. I don't have to do this no more, but I get to have this now. It's like, there's like a, there's a whole like, a paradigm shift of like, okay, it's kind of like, if I'm gonna, hypothetically speaking, let's say, okay, if I wanna be a jingle writer, I could probably make a lot of money, mm -hmm. you know? I don't get to make anything that I wanna make. <laughs> yeah. But I get to make a living making things. Yeah. I could probably make a lot of money doing it. I won't get a lot of cool points doing it. But that's the paradigm of that versus like, you know what? I'm going to start an indie band. You know, I may not make a lot of money, but I'll believe in what I make. And I get to be feel proud of what I make. And it, it may get cool points, but I won't have much. You, like you, there's all these, whatever you do in life, there's all these considerations. And I think for me, the biggest thing I had to, I had to reckon with was like what matters to me. What do I really want? Who do I want to be when I'm doing what I do? Like all those things, like who am I gonna be? What am I gonna do? And what do I wanna have? And in a way that's aligned with like my vision of the world and my vision of myself. And I had to just let that be the North Star and realize that, okay, some of these things that I was pursuing as a young person, that is one way to do it, but it comes with a lot of things that I, I'd rather I really don't want to do or don't feel aligned with. Um, that was, once I made that shift and I had the understanding of like all these choices, I was able to make peace with what comes with it and what does not come with it. Was there anything, was there anything that happened or was there any aspect of, what should we call it, the the moneyed road, the industry road, the whatever, that you were like, that's not for me. I'm going to go this other direction. Was there anything in particular that you had that shift? Yeah. I think I noticed myself pursuing people and opportunities that I really didn't care for, which looks like working with people that I don't like, which means trying to network with people that I don't respect or like it means uh -huh. like actively pursuing projects that I actually don't like or respect or want to be part of mm -hmm. but I feel that I can get something out of it like but if I do this it will get me here mm -hmm. if I work with this person it'll get me here it's like this idea that like you need to compromise your values to to justify where you're going and I started like things like when you start contorting yourself to fit in a paradigm that you really don't want to be in and then you still get rejected. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a, that's like a whole mind fuck, right? Like, of uh -huh. like okay. So I, I'm, I'm like, what's the word? Like begrudgingly making music that I don't believe in, that I don't want to make, but it's what they want. Yeah. I spent all this time making it, which they're not paying you for, because everything is on spec and they'll pay you once they buy it. But you still gotta go through the process of making the thing yeah. to present. So you make this thing because they said, this is what they want, I want a mix of this, I want a song that's like Rihanna meets Limp Biscuit. <laughs> uh -huh. Imagine, imagine Rihanna meets Limp Biscuit with like I Britney, hear that one. with like Britney Spears. Listen, A and R's will always give you some crazy pitch. They're gonna say we want like this. These things that just don't belong together. It's like this is what I want. You go make it, 
And then you have to go chase them down. You finally get in front of them. You play it for them and they say either that's not it or <laughs> they either say that's not it or they say we want something more like this and they play you what they want. It's like, I hate that even more. This, this is, I'm getting rejected for music that I didn't believe in in the first place. Yeah. Getting opinions from people that don't make music. Like this is that whole thing and like playing the game I could like I couldn't do it, bro. I couldn't. I can't deal with the fake shit. I can't like. I, I'm not built for it. <laughs> I'm not built for the fake shit. I'm not built for like. I'm not built for like pretending. I'm not built for playing small. I'm not built for playing that game. I'm not built for like making what I don't believe in. Like I'm a very authentic person, and I'm a very like. I'm very um. I'm spiritual, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm very spiritual and I'm a deep person that cares about things in a way that is not conducive to those spaces. I'm not, I'm not like a coffee table, water cooler talk at the industry party. And I'm not that, I'm not a small talk industry person. Like that, I don't fit in those spaces. I'm not like, let's make whatever they're making. I'm not, that's, I can't do it, y'all. I can't do it, bro. Okay, okay, here's a question for you because I can, I, I believe that I've lived my life much in the way that you have. I worked for nonprofits since I got out of grad school until doing my own therapy thing and I'm a musician because I have not felt comfortable just working in the industry. But here's a question for you. There's all of the game playing and being the cog and everything. If you hit a certain level, do you feel like then you can start I've, I've bypassed all the BS. I'm high enough now that I can start actually putting my message out there and it will reach a large audience. Do you know what I mean? I see it like the micro is macro. Can you say more? Meaning like I'm an independent artist and I have full control over my output mm -hmm. and my direction. And I've seen my artistry impact people in profound ways in a room full of 100 or a room full of 10. Mm -hmm. or a room full of two or a room full of 2,000. I've seen it. Yeah. I, I've, I've already, I already know what my work does. I already know who I am. I already know. I know. So I'm saying that to say when I'm making my music, I'm not holding back. I'm not, I'm not playing uh, like give them little crumbs and then once I like get them, then show them who I am. Yeah. I'm not doing. I'm not. I'm not doing that. Like my first album was called The Intervention, and I was dealing with alcoholism and suicidal thoughts and rebirth, and like I was dealing with heavier concepts then. Ten years ago, when I first decided to make the switch, I, because I told myself if I'm gonna do this, I gotta be all in. There is no half-assing it. So all the ideas that I felt like I was compressed and, and homogenized, and I felt like I was controlled and like coerced into making this like small version of whatever people want to get from me. If that's my life as a producer, like if I'm going to do this artist thing, like it's like go hard or go home. Like there is no safe. That's why I said like being an artist is like a lifestyle. So it's like if I'm making these songs, I'm giving it everything. I'm talking about the things that I think need to be heard. I'm not I'm not giving you I'm not giving you like cookie cutter music so that I can get right. you. And, and, then, and, and then once I get enough fans, I'm going to be my full self. I'm my full self now. And yes. I make songs that are big now. 100%. I mean, I think, you're, I think anybody is probably better at what they do when they're into it, too. So, but going back to the micro is macro. So to me, that says if I'm putting my all into this thing that I'm doing, I guess I'm, well, does that, when you're, tell me what that means. Micro is macro. I really like that. I like that. I'm, I'm clinging onto that. Uh, micro is yeah. macro. Like if, if you're making something that resonates deeply with you, yeah, that's an indicator that it could resonate with many. Totally. If I play a show and I deeply impact one person in the crowd, if there are three people in the crowd, at least one of those people is like, confessing all these feelings of what it conjured and how it made him feel and what it did for them and like 
if you can have that impact on a micro level, like that is macro. Like you just, it's like, then the process is just rinse and repeat. So I don't, I look at it like, okay, if I can one by, on the mac, on the micro, if I can impact one individual person in like a profound way, mm-hmm. in, a me, in a meaningful, substantial way, that's like not quantifiable, but qualifiable, like it's qu- qualitative. Yes. If I can do that, then that's all I need. That's, that, that's the proof, the concept is yes. the one. One is proof of concept. I love that. Let's, let's take a music break. I want to, I want to listen to Get Free. Let's do it. Can you tell me about it before we take a listen? Yeah, Get Free is, Get Free is a song I wrote about um, dealing with depression, and I was just feeling kind of hopeless at a a particular point in time, and felt like my, my life, like things were crashing down around me, nothing was kind of working out, I'm feeling like I'm in a dark hole, and I'm feeling like lost, and how did I get into this place, and I'm wanted to get get out of there, to get free, but I couldn't see the staircase. I just saw the light at the end of the tunnel, but no clear path. Um, and so I wrote a song about it, and this is the song. Life is crashing before my eyes. Tries are stacking, it's do or die. Can't quit, I've come too far to lose. Won't let this break me. a song as you said about this experience you had with depression let's talk about uh if 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 you will um mental health a little more specifically um i'm going to open it up to you but you know mental health music your artistry what does all of that mean to you i was diagnosed with adhd when i was seven and you know i spent my formative years in special ed and so having an IEP, being special ed, being on medication, having a therapist since I was seven, it's all these things. It's like, 
I've had to advocate for myself my entire life, and I've had to like work against having learned, learning disabilities, learning, working, working, figuring out how to thrive in life while being neurodivergent, while having a diagnosis, while being in special ed, while being black, while being depressed, while having all these issues, I've had to figure out how to navigate from being a kid and having to advocate for myself. Um, so it's important to me because of just, just because of that, I know the struggle I've had. Um, as an adult, I, you know, I'm able to like better articulate and name the various things and like name how I'm feeling and name my emotions and put together these teams to help me deal with my mental health. Um, but I know how difficult it is. I know how much I've suffered and I'd like to help others to like get care. And I hope to inspire people to open up, to be vulnerable and to get healing and to get care. It means a lot to me. It's personal. Can you talk a little bit about the Get Free Mental Health Initiative? What is that? Yeah, so it's, I'm a generative artist. I'm a, what they would call, what they would call a, a, someone who does art with like community practice, socially engaged art. So mm -hmm. like I make work and then I find ways to recontextualize it. And you know, whether it's my frontline art exhibition, whether it's the power of love as like a nonprofit, and now this Get Free Initiative, it's like, for me, journaling is like something that is like a lifesaver. It's like, it gives me a space to like, understand how I feel. It gives me a space to, to get clear. Cause I've been doing, I've been journaling since I was eight. So being able to get clear on what I'm going through, how am I feeling? What am I thinking? What's mm -hmm. all that's there? And sometimes I may not get it until a page in. Maybe two pages in sometimes. Yeah. So I want to offer this to other people that as like a way out, as like a as like a, a way to get free. Is like it's not it's not the solution, but it's a pathway to get to, on the right track. So I, I'm doing this as like mutual aid, you know, to give back and to like help save a life. And what is the you know you you alluded to this the your nonprofit, the Power of Love Project. Can you tell us what that is exactly? Power of Love Project is it's an incubator for, for freedom fighters and change makers. What does that mean? An incubator? Incubator is a place where things are well, I know what it, grow. <laughs> what does it mean in terms of the organization? Well what does it look like? It's like that that place where the X-Men went with Doc with Doctor. Xavier, Professor X, and like they learned how to hone in on their talents and skills to use them for good. So I'm doing that with change makers, artists as change makers. You know what I'm saying? Like one of my programs is called Freedom Summer, and I'm teaching I'm teaching young people as a way for like sustainability and activism and revolution is if I can train the next wave of freedom fighters, then there will always be. There'll always be a new, a next line of infantry if I'm the one that's training them. Okay. Um, I'm also coaching and developing, teaching artists and teaching them about social justice, education, and blending it with the arts. So I'm also training the next wave of like adult leaders. Uh huh. And they're gonna take it on somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? Like, and we do protest relief and all these other things that are like community facing. Um, mutual aid and so like it's creating it is an incubator for change making and it is a it's a place where the, the power of love project is a place where um it's a place where possibility lives and it's a place where um social justice is like inherently part of the culture you know what i'm saying it's not like social justice isn't like a buzzword that we're putting on top of what we do uh -huh. It's a place that we're coming from. Do you feel hopeful or despondent about the future? 
I feel hopeful. Got to. Hopeful also like a year or two, maybe two or three years ago, I went to the African American Museum. Listeners, I'm a black man. Let's, you hear my voice, but I want to say it again. I am a black man. Going to the African American Museum in DC, um, it's profound. Like, you go to the top and it's like, it's like flashy and inspirational and aspirational. But you go down this elevator and it takes you to the bottom. And it's like, goes back in time hundreds of years. So like, seeing the progression of how our people were stolen from our land and like, survived chattel slavery and how we survived the Middle Passage and how we endured these horrible, atrocious terrorism, right? So when I look at like how bad things are now, I think about how worse they used to be. And I think about the, the risks and the sacrifices that like Sojourner Truth made, that Frederick Douglass made, that Harriet Tubman made, that Nat Turner made, that like this, isn't, this work doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's on the shoulders and backs of of generations of others, you know what I'm saying? Like, I am because Frederick Douglass was. I am because Harry Belafonte was. I am because James Baldwin was. I am because Basquiat was. I am because the list goes on, mm. you know what I'm saying? I am because Nina, Nina Simone was. Like, this is not new. And yes, if you measured how, if you measured, if you were to measure how bad things are now to how bad they were five years ago, it might feel like this is pointless. But if you look at the collective movement for black lives and the collective movement for liberation, we've made a lot of progress. And I believe that we're, we're actually, we're making strides. And, but with, Frederick Douglass once said that like, what was it, like, no, no, no struggle, no progress? Like, in order to have struggle, it's going to be, in order to have progress, there is going to be some sort mm -hmm. of struggle that, that comes with it. To like, because you're, you're going against the grain. There was a time when women could not vote. And there was a time when black people were property, right? There was a time when white people were powder wigs and spoken fucking King's English. Those times are no longer. So I'm saying that to say, I feel hopeful because the nature of people is to survive and to thrive and to, to persevere. And we're going to find a way. That was lovely. Have you seen the kids these days? Like these queer ass kids are like so proud and so brave and so expressive. Mm -hmm. Like my generation could never like these. I wasn't like these kids these days are so courageous. Like I don't have any. At best, I want to be the most inspiring person that they can use to take it to the next level. But like they're already leaps and bounds ahead of where I was at their age. They're like, I was looking at this kid earlier. Had to be ten, eleven. He had hair was like spotted. It was like an animal. It was like blonde and black. Uh -huh. And I was like. When I was eight, I begged my mom to let me do this, and she would not let me at that time. <laughs> Here we are in 2022, and you're allowed to express yourselves. I got little boys in the background putting makeup on, girls. Like, there's all types of... The people are, like, being freed in ways that I could only dream of. And so I have hope because they're next. And if they're fully themselves at 10, 11, 12, imagine when they're 20, 25. Yeah. They're going to be... And how the next generation after them is going to be even more revolutionary and even more free and even more forward-thinking. I have faith. I want to ask you this question. Um, I ask, this is like a, a finisher. Uh, usually I ask, you know, as a musician, how do you define success? I feel like for you I want to expand the question and say as a person, as an artist, as a person, how do you define success for yourself? I like to look at my mom, Camille DeJourna, as like my muse and my like example for success. You know what I mean? My mom had me and my brothers in her 20s and she was a wife 
and a model. And somewhere in her 30s, she realized that she wanted more for herself and she decided to go back to school and she ended up getting her law degree from NYU, got an amazing fellowship scholarship and like she's, she's, uh, she's retiring now in June. And she just won a lifetime, the, she just won a Ruth Bader Ginsburg Lifetime Achievement Award, which is a full circle moment because when she was in her 30s and she was deciding to go to law school, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, go to NYU, don't go to Columbia, because the way you're thinking is more aligned with the work they're doing in, in NYU. So for her to get this Lifetime Achievement Award, this Ruth Bader Ginsburg Award, and for her to have accomplished so much after kind of starting late in the game. Yeah. How many kids? Three. Three and a miscarriage. So the both no, no, sorry, three and then my sister who was right before me, she passed after like a month. She had complications. So that's like four. So mm. four wow. plus a husband and all these things. My mom is so badass and she accomplished all this after the after the age of 30. You know what I'm saying? She's now 72 and she's like getting ready to retire. But that's amazing. She pulled herself out of the throes of motherhood to become this iconic person. And I'm looking at it like now, like, wow, she's 70 and she's like, has accomplished the things that she saw possible when she was 30. And at a time when women weren't lawyers like that, there mm -hmm. wasn't a lot, there wasn't like a lot of women lawyers. It wasn't a lot of women professionals like in the 60s and 70s. It was not commonplace. So I'm saying that to say, what success for me, I'm saying, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to, I'm saying, I'm bringing that up to say that like, success to me is having my journey and my mission and this work that I do to be able to unfold and continue to blossom. Yeah, it's as long as like, is, is, the, is like, am I still producing fruit? Am I still blossoming? Am I still growing? Am I still finding new ways to express myself? Am mm. I still finding new ways to empower and inspire others? Am I tapping in, am I continuing to tap into deeper levels of myself? Mm. Like, and like, am I able to continue to, to like ideate and execute at high levels that like continues to like surprise, pleasantly surprise myself and to like, to like dismantle and like blaze through societal norms. Like, am I, like those are the ways that like being, being the most me that I can be unapologetically is success. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like I'm starting to, I'm starting to tap into it now. And I'm, I'm pretty saucy. Like I got a lot of sauce. Like I'm pretty, I'm a swaggy nigga. Like <laughs> don't get it fucked up. But this, so, I'm, I'm kind of low key starting to tap into my greatness and I'm pretty damn great. So for me, success is like, like, it's like, instead of being the, instead of like going with the flow, it's like being the flow. Uh -huh. That is success. That was amazing. I love hearing about your mom also. Yeah. yeah, shout out to my mom's Camille DiGiorno. And, you know, I come from, my mom, my mom, you know, my mom is an activist and a, and a lawyer, academic. She's also a creative. She plays the guitar and she sings and she dances. And she, she taught me about black history. She, my mom taught me about feminism and black history. My mom taught me about activism. My mom at a young age, put the books in my hand. I said, read this, study this, know who this is. Like she put that on me. So she, you know, I'm the product of, I'm the product of a black feminist and it all got to come from somewhere. You know what I'm saying? My parents met at a protest. My dad, Stephen Reed was, uh -huh. was a journalist. He was interviewing protesters and my mom was one of them. And that's oh. how they met. And then, uh -huh. you know, so, Shout out to my parents, man. Is there anything else? I feel like I could, I, I definitely feel like I could talk to you so much more. I, I Is there anything else that you want to make sure to share today or to touch on today? Fuck the algorithm. It's not real. <laughs> I want everybody to know that your life is your life and the internet is a fucking zoo. It's a, it's a shit show. It's like, it's a curated version of like artificial intelligence. It's like 
When you think of like seeing like virtual reality, the internet is like virtual reality and we're all like so caught up in trying to make our actual real life measure up to virtual reality and it's like a farce. And we're, we're, if we continue to go down this path of trying to, to, to clout chase, to fame chase, to impress, to like measure up to, we're gonna, we're gonna deplete ourselves and like deplete ourselves, we're gonna run ourselves into the ground the revolution's gonna happen and we're not gonna be ready. We're not gonna see ourselves for our greatness and we're not gonna see the humanity in ourselves. Like, or each other. I, or each other. Like, I want people to like, remember to connect with actual human beings in the real world and to like, love your brother and to love your sister and to love your neighbor. Like, there's, there's, there's so much down the pipeline of difficulty and challenges that's, that's coming, regardless of if we want it to or not natural disasters and like political disarray and like there's so you know there's there's so much on the horizon that's going to be very challenging and i have hope but there's a lot of challenges that is that are that is some of a lot of it's here and there's more coming and i think it's important it's incumbent for us to connect with each other to to stay connected to our own humanity to see the humanity in others and like build bridges and to like don't, don't allow yourself to be so distracted by like distractions on social media and, and the, the virtual reality that is social media that we lose sight of our actual humanity in real life. It's very inspirational. And now I don't know whether to title your episode Micro is Macro or Fuck the Algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad at either one. <laughs> Fuck the algorithm. Listen, the campaign that I just did for Get Free was, I told myself, fuck the algorithm. If I want to connect with people, how do I do it? And I, I, I printed out flyers and I put them on subways and I put it on stores and I put it on walls. I had conversations with actual real people. I did these journaling workshops. Like I connected with actual people in the actual real world and I was able to make a connection with people in ways that was so meaningful that the algorithm could never. It's like they say, the millennials say, your fave could never. The yeah. algorithm could never. <laughs> Social media could never. <laughs> Giving me too many quotes. It could never. <laughs> Seth, it was a true pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Where is your where, where is your hub? Where's you your? Can find I am Steph Reed on social media at I A M S T E F F R E E D, and um, my website is I am Steph Reed. Dot com. Hit Thanks. me up. All right. Okay, that was my conversation with Steph Reed. Steph, thank you so much. Visit musictherapypodcast.com for show notes to find a link to Steph's website, his music, everything he's doing. He is a busy guy. He's an accomplished guy. I hope you guys are doing well. Music Therapy is hosted by Jessica Risker, produced by Sullivan Davis of Local Universe, and engineered by Joshua Wentz in Chicago. Peace and love. Till I see you again.